Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. My name is Jay Martin. I'm an investor and the CEO of Cambridge House. And my guest today is Andy Norman. Now, Andy is a philosopher and the author of a book called Mental Immunity. Now, the reason that I wanted to talk to Andy today was because maybe like you, I have noticed a disturbing trend in the communities and uh, and people and, and just general news flow that I see in my life that is this increasing intolerance of ideas that oppose our own and that may challenge our assumptions. And this isn't a surprise to anybody who's got their eyes open right now. We're seeing this trend occur globally, and it's kind of disturbing to me uh, as a human being and as a father of three young kids who will grow up in whatever this world becomes. And so I'm trying to understand how we get back to a place of honest, critical thought and healthy debate. And when I say healthy debate, I mean the idea that you and I could have a stark disagreement about something very, very important to us, but sit down and I could listen with complete tolerance and acceptance as you shoot holes in my theory, prove me wrong. And I understand that as a consequence, I leave the conversation more intelligent and therefore better than when I entered it or vice versa, the other direction, or maybe somewhere in the middle. But getting back to a place of benefiting from ideas that challenge our assumptions and oppose our belief systems. So uh, this is what Andy focuses on. And he, he brings the idea that uh, bad ideas travel through human beings like parasites do. They change our behavior. They're contagious. And uh, there's a variety of ways that we can fortify our brains uh, with mental immunity. So that's what we talk about today. I really enjoyed it. A couple of things before we jump in here today. I'm hosting an event, a big party in Vancouver, British Columbia on January 16th and 17th, 2022. And this is the Super Bowl of macro finance. It's called the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. And I've invited over 100 keynote speakers to join me live on stage. We're going to dive into all the hottest themes in macro finance, economics, geopolitics. Um, I'll be joined by the former Prime Minister of Canada, Stephen Harper, the former President of Mexico, Felipe Calderon, best-selling finance author of all time, Robert Kiyosaki, the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and dozens and dozens and dozens more. I've got over 100 keynote speakers who are going to come and square off with me on stage and try to make sense of what the heck's going on out there. Because if you're like me, you know, COVID was one thing, but I believe COVID was just the trigger point for the events that are about to occur in our life over the next decade. And we're, we're seeing this unfold right in front of our eyes. So come join me in Vancouver, British Columbia, January 16th and 17th, www.cambridgehouse.com for tickets. Here is Andy Norman on The Jay Martin Show. Enjoy. All right, what's up, guys? Jay Martin here, investor and CEO of Cambridge House. And my guest today is Andy Norman, the author of Mental Immunity. Andy, I'm really looking forward to chatting with you today. Thanks so much for making the time. Thank you, Jay. It's nice to be here. Why don't we start with a bit of a high-level overview of uh, of who you are, Andy, and, and how you spend your time. And, and if you want to touch on your book, you know, absolutely. I'd love just to introduce my audience to what we're going to be talking about. Sure. Uh, so I'm a philosopher by training. And I've spent much of my life actually teaching college students how to think critically. And a few years ago, I realized that standard approaches to teaching critical thinking just aren't doing the job in our new hyper-connected world, that many very smart people are following down information rabbit holes or misinformation rabbit holes. Mm. And that we need a new, better approach to what I'm starting to think of as the great infodemic of our time. 
Um, I think uh, bad ideas and misinformation are spreading around the world um, in alarming ways and rewiring people's brains in ways that are genuinely destructive of many things we care about. So I wrote a book about this. It's called Mental Immunity, and it's about how we solve this problem um, by bringing a new science of how the mind spots and removes bad ideas. So how do the best, wisest thinkers think? And why is it that they do a better job of spotting and removing bad ideas than the rest of us? And how can, what can we learn from them so that we can all become wiser versions of ourselves? That's what the book is about. And I think it's, uh, uh, well, certainly judged by the reception. It's uh, my message has kind of struck a chord yeah invitations like this yeah 100 percent. and uh i mean you know right away when you say how does the mind spot identify and remove bad ideas you know where my mind went right away is on this uh safetyism trend in universities right now where i think we're seeing a lot of this in in kind of like the call out and cancel culture of of maybe guest speakers at universities that they're going to present ideas that that might oppose the majority of students those yes. are registering as ideas that are being spotted, recognized, and should be removed as a bad idea just because it's an opposing idea, right? You see, you must be seeing this trend. I, I, I hear a lot about it. I, I read about it. And I'm also concerned about this trend. I, I do think there are forces at work that are blowing this problem out of proportion. Yeah. Part of it is that um, in this new digital world we've created, young people today can actually see sometimes better than the rest of us how much damage bad ideas can do. And they're seeing the ways in which those ideas can spread and actually harm people. Uh, and many of them are very concerned about the effects on the most vulnerable among us. And so they're, uh, many of them are lashing out in using the only tools they know how to and the kind of cancel culture. I, I'm not a fan of the, of, the, of the approach being used by cancel culture justice warriors. Uh, but I think these people are actually well-intentioned people who are trying to address a problem and they don't know any other way to, to address it. Right. I, I think the, the problem is not always the way it's represented in the press, um, but it is a problem. We do need to create a culture where people can raise objections and challenge ideas and potentially offend people. We need a, a culture where people are not doxxed or character assassinated for voicing controversial views. The question is how we do that in a way that doesn't cause us to vilify one another and turn us into, into enemies or you know, irreconcilable ideologues. Yeah. You know, how, how then would you go about defining something like a bad idea? You know, if you want to be able to spot, identify and remove bad ideas, it's completely dependent on my definition of what that is. And and maybe that's, you know, we, we just, you just mentioned it. There's a lot of well-intentioned social justice warriors who are trying to do the right thing for the right people, but maybe a, maybe a bit misled in, in, their, in their directive. Yeah. So, so the, the philosophical question at the very heart of my project is, what is a bad idea? How do you know an idea is a genuinely bad one? What makes it bad? And can we arrive at a, at a common standard? of goodness or badness for ideas so that we can actually assess them collaboratively rather than just by pointing fingers and accusing one another of being wrong, right? Mm. That we, we don't solve any problems by pointing fingers across the political divide or 
or you know the religious secular divide and just saying people on that side are crazy that that, that gets us nowhere so philosophers have been wrestling with this question for a long time and what they've come to see is that there's a certain kind of dialogue that can allow us to bridge even deep fundamental value differences there are ways of talking to people who have very different values learning from them and growing together but you have to bring the right attitude and the right mindset to those conversations um it used to there there are periods in in history where cultures have developed have become very very good at this the enlightenment in ancient greece where the art of philosophical idea testing was raised to to extraordinary heights and it created so many good things for the residents of those cultures but we seem to have forgotten many of those key lessons today and we we don't know how to talk across difference any longer in a constructive way we don't know how to test ideas properly but if you define good idea and bad idea properly that creates a starting point so that we can move forward together and begin to solve this problem and so does that therefore get into the the question of like morality and and ethics and, and natural law or how do you because right, you know, how could you begin to carve out what a good idea is in some sort of universal acceptance? Yeah. Um, so, so I do. I have taught ethics for for many years as well, and I I think there's a branch of eth- an underdeveloped branch of ethics called belief ethics that can give us a lot of uh, insight here. So the ethics of belief can actually help us get a clearer grasp of how to find the genuinely good ideas and how to spot genuinely bad ones. Look, here, there's some there's some very basic things that we should we all need to acknowledge up front if we're going to think clearly about which ideas are good, which ideas are bad, and approach the problem of sifting them, sifting through them properly. Um, and m- most of these are perfectly unproblematic or uncontroversial. Truth is a good quality in an idea. Falsehood is a bad quality. Everybody mm. worth taking seriously agrees on those things. Ideas that are well-evidenced, that being well-evidenced counts for an idea. Being poorly evidenced should count against an idea. Mm. If an idea is beneficial to the people who accept or believe it, if it changes human behavior in ways that benefit us all, that's a good thing. If, I, if an idea lodges in the brain and produces behaviors that harm people, that's a bad thing. These are all uncontroversial facts about the properties of ideas that we can, if you pay attention to them closely, you can use them to assess ideas properly and spot the ones that are genuinely counterproductive to our ends. The problem is a lot of us buy into ideas that subvert our own best interests, that we don't see that we're doing it. Mm. Okay, so I, I can't think I'm trying I'm trying to argue your points here Andy I, so, yeah, go, I, I love that <laughs> and I can't test, test my ideas by all means <laughs> I can't find anything to dispute about truth versus falsehood I think you're right we have to universally agree because I don't see any objective nature to that right if you're being impeccable with your word right that's truth right versus misleading you know falsifying information that's falsehood I think we can agree no matter what your your morals your ethics your background your belief systems are that's very polarizing to me mm-hmm. same with well evidenced versus uh poorly evidenced right is this just a construct you've created you know it's belief you have that you just really want other people to believe but there's not a lot of work put into this where i feel challenged is on changing human behavior 
positively mm -hmm. versus negatively, because I feel like there's more nuance within that. Right. And, okay. and what's, cause then what's the definition of, uh, of positive human behavior versus negative human behavior? Does that get, there's layers to that. Right. And then, and then uh, in terms of influencing behavior, have you read a book called nudge? Uh, I think it's Richard Taylor. Is it I have right read there? it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, he he co-wrote it with a guy named Cass Sunstein. Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Fascinating book on like decision architecture, right? And and how we can influence people to make better decisions without eliminating freedom, right? Which is a right. really interesting thing to think about, right? So anyway, so I'd love you to talk about that third point a little bit and and help me with that one. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to think of an example that might make this really clear. Suppose that I believe that I belong to a superior race and that you belong to an inferior race. Now, you might have issues with whether or not that belief is well evidenced, but you're also likely to have concerns that that idea will cause me to do inhumane things to you. Okay. Right? Because when people start to think of other people as you know, subhuman. Sure. That often creates the conditions for genocide and other awful things. Okay. And we understand. So we understand this about ideas that they can actually affect human behavior in ways that are good, good or bad. Now there are certainly many layers to cashing out what we mean by good behavior or bad behavior. But but there are also some very basic things that we should be able to recognize and mutually acknowledge here. Mutual well-being is good. Mutual suffering is bad. And if we can move together towards a world where we all get to flourish, that's a good thing. Right? So, I mean, ethics is basically about trying to create some guidelines for human behavior in ways that genuinely promote our well-being. I mean, it's not, it's not a ethereal thing that comes down from, you know, some from some mysterious source that I'm aware. Ethics is really about how social animals can get along and, and promote one another's welfare. Mm -hmm. And there's an extensive science of this now coming, growing out of game theory about how, how you create the conditions that allow for cooperation to, to really work. And, and Sunstein and, and Thaler's book, Nudge, is all about can we nudge our own behavior and each other's behavior in ways that allow us to live together in more fruitful and pro-social ways. I mean, can, can, we, can we nudge people away from antisocial behaviors and antisocial beliefs mm. and nudge them towards uh, more pro-social and well-being enhancing ways? Right. I think the term they use is paternal libertarianism or, or along those lines. And it's a, it's a fascinating read. It's a book that I'm halfway through right now, which is why it came to mind. Um, I'm really, really enjoying it. Okay, so this, what you just described right now is, is like front and center, right? Because you used a pretty dire example. We've seen examples of genocide throughout history when one community starts to believe they're superior in some way towards another and therefore take, uh, you know, horrific action. But even in today, we're not seeing that, but we are seeing what I'm seeing anyways, these deepening, deepening divisions in our society where two groups are coming to and in my community right where we're, we're getting to a place where we're just not willing to communicate not willing to hear the other point of view clearly you're wrong 
you're an idiot for not realizing you're wrong and I need to punish you into agreeing with me, right? And this is a two-way street. It's going both ways, probably probably many ways actually, but you know, to simplify. And so exactly what you just described is occurring, right? Right now. And if I look at the trajectory of this conflict, it's not going the right way. You know, we That's can- right. And, and, and this kind of thing has happened many times before, right? So what start off as kind of gentle partisan disagreements can become deeply divisive, ideologically entrenched issues. And history tells a long, sad stories of what happens to the cultures where these deep divides just continue to fester and grow. Um, these societies fail. These cultures collapse. Their political systems implode. Time and time again, societies have devolved into chaos and civil war because the beliefs that were really central to people's identities became uh, so polarized, so far apart that they could no longer get along. Mm. We're well down that path in America today. We have to figure out how to turn it around. Yeah. And it's, it's very challenging. I guess, you know, if we just focus on like the last 10 years, what's sort of my recent memory you know, that, that, that's been a landslide going one direction, right? And I can think back to well, the first time I felt triggered was 2010. And I was walking down, the first time I recall being triggered in this regard, like an us versus them triggering. And I was yeah. walking down Howe Street in Vancouver, which is like, I don't know, Vancouver's version of, of uh, Wall Street, right? It's their finance district. And, and I work in finance. So I was wearing a suit, walking past the Occupy Wall Street protesters that had positioned themselves in Vancouver, and I got heckled. And somebody literally called up to me and they're like, nice suit, you shill. And I just, you know, and they, and then the crowd wow. cheered. Right. And I'm, wow. I'm walking down the street solo and right away I could feel my posture change, you know, my, my, my back get up. And I was like, it's, this is, this is, uh, this is, this is, <laughs> this is combat, right? What's yeah. going to happen here. And, you know, I drew a line in the sand, us versus them walked back to my office, nothing happened, but I was fuming, right. Fuming yeah. about how wrong they were, how lazy it was to protest without putting solutions forward. And, you know, how clearly they didn't understand the kind of person I was and blah, blah, blah. And I had this whole narrative in my head. And, uh, you know, it dominated the rest of my day. And then it, was, it wasn't until I got home that night that I was like, what are you so mad about? Those people don't know you. You don't know them. And, you know, let's like pump the brakes here for a minute, right? What actually occurred, right? You just got triggered and it worked, right? Like, you know? Well, and, and if you had had to try to talk through the difference of opinion with those protesters right there on the spot, after you've been triggered, chances are not good that the conversation would have would have unfolded in a constructive way. Right? Probably not. Yeah. Um, what was your word for uh, walking it back, slowing it down? I said pump the brakes. Pump the brakes. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so my book is in significant part about how we can pump the brakes on the very fight or flight mental responses that trigger us. So, so philosophers have been saying for a long time that most of us walk through our lives kind of on autopilot, basically letting things in our environment, stimuli of various kinds, trigger us into doing this, that, or the other. Mm. And philosophers going all the way back to ancient Greece have basically said, whoa, whoa, start, hit the brakes there a little bit, pump the brakes, slow down your thought process, and really be mindful about that stimuli and, and try to take a constructive approach to responding to that stimulus. Okay. So uh, there's also been a lot of work uh, on the difference between slow thinking and fast thinking. Mm. So many of us respond on a gut level or intuitively or 
emotionally to things. That's fast thinking. And philosophers and psychologists going back thousands of years have recognized that our own psychological tendencies often betray our best interests. Yeah. One of the best solutions to that is to slow down your thinking and say, wait a second here. Do I really want to let this guy get under my skin? Do I really want to lash out? Does it really help anything to demonize the people on the other side? Mm. And instead substitute a different behavior that leads us all in a more constructive direction. So that's that's what the book is about. Yeah. And you just you just hit on something uh really timely for me. What I'm trying to understand right now is uh is intuition and the factors that contribute to intuition and and i can't recall exactly how you you described it but you know we, we go through life we have experiences these become available memories to us contributing to what you might call availability bias right something occurs and you immediately reflect on maybe something similar that already occurred to you and this must be the same even if it's not you know yes. confirmation bias we're all familiar with i already feel this way recency bias what happened to me yesterday this is going to happen in this situation and it it puts intuition, you know, on the chopping block a little bit for me, because it's like if that if intuition is just a formula, right? It's an equation of all this stuff that occurred. And that stuff could have occurred this way, that way anyway. But it happened to occur this way. And as a result, my formula equals this. And and this, but you know, we we want to believe that we can trust our gut. It's romantic to say, oh, you know, follow your intuition, trust your gut. But what you what you kind of explain is like maybe there's a difference between intuition and reaction. And those are very different things. I don't mm -hmm. know. But what do you think about what I just shared? Yeah, um, I, I like the way you you talked about intuition a lot. I think there's a lot of wisdom in what you say. Um, I would put intuition and reaction on the same side of a divide that puts a more mindful, conscious, deliberate response on the other side. So so it, intuitions are kind of like internalized rules of thumb for rough and ready uh, responses. So when somebody treats you like this, respond like that. You know, simple rules like that. And sometimes those rules form in our minds under certain familiar conditions, and they work relatively well within those familiar conditions. But then conditions change. I mean, if we keep relying on the same rules, they'll mislead us or, mm. or guide us in the wrong direction. So I, I, I think intuitions are always worth a hearing but never worth the final stay. <laughs> right. It's, it's fine to listen to your emotions, to listen to your, the emotions of your detractors. Uh, in fact, it's important that you listen to the opinions of those who disagree with you. Uh, and, it's, and it's important to listen to your, your intuitive and gut response. But it's almost always a mistake to let them have the final say. That's a starting point for analysis and reflection, not, the, not a replacement for analysis and reflection. Right. Right. You know, based off of that, I came up with this mantra that I, I practice. When I practice it, I usually like the outcome a lot better than when I don't. And it's when I'm usually in conversation with somebody and maybe things become heated or whatever. Uh, and I feel the need to react, right? You said something, I want to react with something back. And if I can take a minute instead of reacting to then it's simple, pause, think, act instead of react. It's amazing how much better I like the outcome. <laughs> that, 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 that's, I think, the key difference here is, is trying to become less reactive and more proactive. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, various sort of mindfulness practices that rooted in, you know, Eastern meditation traditions are a really nice way to increase, decrease one's rea reactivity and, and increase one's uh, proactivity. So 
when you want to be able to do that right in a conversation, in a fast-moving conversation with, with potentially upsetting ideas flowing back and forth, that requires a, a mindfulness discipline that philosophers have practiced for thousands of years. And I actually argue that the, the secret to learning how to become wiser is to understand that your mind has an immune system that can overreact to a stimulus yeah. and, ca and cause you to, to be fearful of it. So I, I like to tell the joke of Fred the Flat Earther. So Fred dies and go goes to heaven, marches into God's inner sanctum and says, hey, God, uh, I've been a flat earther my whole life. I have to know, is the world flat or is it round? And God says, I'm sorry to say, Fred, but the world is very, very round. And Fred looks at him and says, this conspiracy goes higher than I thought. <laughs> yeah, right. Right, right, right. right. Um, what's happening there is that Fred's ability to doubt and question things has gotten so out of control that he'll question anything, even, even the word of God right in front of him. Yeah. Right. The fact is, all of us can do that. We can get triggered by the latest news cycle and to let our, and our fears and our doubts can spiral out of control leading us to lose perspective. And the trick to solving that problem is to basically modulate your mind's immune response to perceived threats. What's up, everybody? Sorry for the interruption. Quick note, if you enjoy these conversations, I publish a weekly newsletter and it's free where I share my top takeaways lessons learned, and any action steps I might be taking as a consequence in the market. Sign up at cambridgehouse.com. I publish every week and it's free. Now back to the conversation. You know, we're, we're more and more integrated. Our lives more and more integrated online and therefore subject to, when you said the news cycle can trigger us, well, they're very different than they used to be very strategic, you know, and I've had uh, Christopher Wiley on the show. He was one of the core architects of the Cambridge Analytica scandal back in the 2016 election. He walked me through essentially how they created insurgencies in the United States around radical ideas with, you know, algorithmic accounts that weren't real, but you put some, some radical ideas out in front of somebody and, and they see somebody else say it first and they think, well, maybe I'm not alone with that thought I had in the very back of my mind. There's a whole community of people who think this way. Yes. And you, you grow, you grow radical communities that way, you know, and, and uh, so. Yeah. So and I think, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I, I mean, I, I, I hadn't heard that particular episode. You said uh, Wiley, what was his name? Wiley. Yeah. I mean, it sounds to me like he was basically said that he was organizing a campaign where he could trigger people's emotional responses and get them to, I mean, he was basically playing people. 100%. Using social media. Yes. Right? I think yeah. a lot of this Cambridge Analytica work happened through Facebook, correct? Yes, correct. Right. So we all need to understand this. There are bad actors out there who are actually trying to manipulate the way we think. And social media gives them very powerful tools to do that. They, they can manipulate the way you think, they can manipulate the way you feel, and they can make you angry about things you, you are better off not being angry about. Right. There's right. a whole lot of that going on right now. We have to wake up to the fact that um, people are trying to manipulate us this way, and we need to make ourselves less reactive to just, just to preserve our sanity and our, our equilibrium. 
So I agree with you. And I, here's what people often say when, you know, somebody might talk about that. They say, okay, we'll spend less time on social media then. And I think, okay, that's a good start. And you're right. And everybody could probably benefit from that. But simultaneously, you know, social media today is what a phone line was in the 80s. And as a small business owner, if I wanted to start my company in 1982, I couldn't do so without a phone line and a physical address. Today, the same utilities, that's what social media is to my business. If I want to be present, front and center, be in communication with my customers, I need to have that presence. I need to be online. So for, for me, I don't know, maybe I'm missing something, but exiting social media is not an option that I'm considering. Less time scrolling, 100%. 100%. That's different, right? Yeah. But I'm going to be present there. So I'm going to be exposed. So how do we then practice? What can we practice, Andy, to achieve more mental immunity and become more resilient against, against this? Yeah. Um, so here's a couple things that I th think come out of this new science of mental immunity that I talk about in the book. So I call this science cognitive immunology. And the basic idea is that in the same way that the germ theory of disease alerted us to the root causes of, of many illness. A new view of mental um, dysfunction that recognizes that bad ideas can spread like mind parasites, mm -hmm. beginning to spread through the sciences right now. Science is starting to take seriously the idea that um, bad ideas are fundamentally mind parasites. Interesting. And those mind parasites can lodge in your brain and, and hijack it, can lodge in your okay. mind and hijack it. Yeah. So under, understand that ideas are, are unruly things that don't always follow your beck and call. Ideas can actually bend your mind in a way that doesn't serve your best interests. So handle ideas carefully. That's number one. Um, number two, um, you are not your beliefs. Mm. The moment you identify with your beliefs, you become easily triggerable by any objections to those beliefs because they've perceived right. as a threat to your identity. Yes. Right? Yes. So it's a really bad idea to hitch your identity to a, set, to a certain ideology or to a certain set of preconceptions because then if dialogue goes in the direction of raising questions about them, you will overreact and you will not be able to think in a clear fair-minded way about those issues. So recognize that your beliefs are temporary uh, guests. House, think of your beliefs as house guests that may be serving you well now, but mm -hmm. that might need to be shown the door later. Sure, sure. All right. Third, third thing, reasons aren't weapons. Don't treat them as tools for bludgeoning people on the other side. Think of reasons as pointers you can use to gently guide people's attention to things that you think are relevant. What do you mean? So when, when a conversation becomes tense or, or charged by a culture war, you've got culture warriors on either side using reasons to bash uh, people on the other side and prove that they're right and they're, and they're wrong and you're right. But once you start thinking of reasons that way as weapons, you actually subvert your own mind's immune system. Your, your mind's immune system will begin to betray you if you start thinking like a culture warrior. So therefore, do you use the word reasons as you might use like the word evidence? Like here's more evidence why I'm right and you're wrong. Very similar concepts, yes. Um, okay. A reason is just a, um, is a sentence uh, or an idea that codifies evidence. 
okay. or at least or at least codifies a consideration. So if anytime you take a consideration that you think is relevant and you and you form a sentence to express it, yeah, or form a sentence to draw attention to that consideration, that's a reason. Okay. Yeah, I mean, this it's funny, like the scale at which these things apply. I can think earlier this week, I was in a just a, dealing with some stuff in the office, a bit more stressed than usual, and. And I, I let something that my my wife say to me just completely hit me the wrong way. You know, it was very triggering to me. Mm-hmm. And um, instead of uh, instead of uh, dismissing that and just being like, you, you know, it didn't mean anything. Uh, I, I made it mean something big. <laughs> We're good at that, aren't we? <laughs> I've made that mistake. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and then, of course, it becomes this like slippery slope. I start looking for evidence to support, right, this idea that that. I'm doing this and she's doing that and all this stuff. And it manifests in just like an uncomfortable walking on eggshells household for, you know, 12 hours. And <laughs> that's a, well, that's a really nice example because you actually could feel that situation sort of spiraling out of control. Like the emotions were starting oh, yeah. to get better of you and oh, yeah. it was starting to threaten the relationship. When I work with students on this, on this issue, I, I say always debate or discuss controversial issues with the goal of maintaining trust and and the relationship. So this works with spouses as well as students. But when you try to work through an issue, if you're really interested in getting at the truth, if you're really interested in deepening your understanding, you will not go into that in a combative way. You will go into it with a way, let's find out together. I'll bring attention to the considerations that I think are important with my reasons. You bring my attention to the things that you think are relevant using your reasons. And let's try to take account of all of the good reasons on both sides. That's the way you get wiser. Well, and that makes complete sense, you know, as long as both people come to the, the table with that in mind. But what happens when one is just set on being combative? Like, I don't yeah. care about your, your reason, right? You're just wrong, right? And you can try to exercise, but... Well, it's very hard to dialogue with somebody who doesn't want to dialogue, who, who wants to shout at you, right? Yeah. I don't have any easy answers to that problem, but mm. I do know that there are ways to disarm people with your humility. There are ways to disarm people by showing that you're willing to listen to them. So one, one rule of thumb I always use is that uh, if, if I disagree with somebody, I'm going to go in and listen first. I'm going to seek first to understand their point of view before I even try to make my point. And a lot of times uh, what I realize is that you know what, I wouldn't have put it that way, but this guy is actually trying to say something valid. Mm -hmm. And if I can come back and say, you know what, I'm hearing you. Here's what I hear you saying. And I here's what's right about what I hear you saying. Am I hearing you right? And you say it back to him using your own words. And if you can say it really well, because you've really been listening closely, and you really care to understand this other point of view, a lot of times people will feel heard, will feel validated, and their defenses will begin to, it'll calm them down. Yeah. It will make them more receptive to your arguments when the time comes for you to present uh, the considerations you think are relevant. Um, I, so I think listen first is a really powerful tool. What's the word? De-escalating conversational tensions. Sure it is. Yeah. And that humility piece is so important. It can be really hard to exercise, you know, especially in that moment you know, if and when you're in that healthy debate, you're, you're exercising your humility, you're listening first, and then you start to realize you were wrong, right? 
you start hearing some good points that are well evidenced and based in truth, et cetera, and, and support the betterment <laughs> positive for, for human, for humanity and humans behavior. And then you have to learn how to concede, which, which can be tough, right? It's a tough thing for people to do. It can be. And I mean, I think, so I marinated for many years in the culture of professional philosophy, where people take their obligation to concede wrong points very, very seriously. Mm -hmm. So there are accounts of um, scientists who get into these raging debates over, you know, whose theory is right. You know, you've got two top-notch scientists who've each invested a decade of their life in a, in a theory, and the two theories, they can't both be true. And right. they meet at a conference and they try to talk it out. I've heard stories of scientists who actually listen to the other person, basically shoot holes full of their theory, their pet theory, the theory they worked on for 10 years and pinned their entire life hopes on and still said, you know what? You're right. I got to rethink my view. Mm -hmm. Think about the humility inherent in that, right? Think about the mental flexibility. That's a requirement of, of, in the science. I mean, no, we in the academia, we in the sciences don't always live up to that ideal fully, but we're trained to do it to the extent we can. And you have to be willing to back down and change your mind when better reasons come along. That's the hallmark of being of, of the scientist. And it's also the hallmark of the wise and rational person. And, and yeah, and speaking just to, to myself personally of the smart investor, right? I mean, you're the biggest benefactor in that scenario. That's, I think, what's important to remember, right? If, if you're able to get to that place where you're seeing things like, okay, no, I just, I just got exposed to a massive blind spot of my own, right? Doesn't feel good. Doesn't yeah. feel good at all, right? But right. who's going to benefit if I reconcile with that, right? I am. That's who. Well, and who's going to get hurt if you cling to that blind spot or, or insist that you don't have a blind spot? 100%. Something's going to come out of that blind spot and blindside you, right? Yes. So that, that's a perfect analogy that in one of the books, I, I, uh, one of the uh, classic pieces of philosophy I write about in the book talks about um, people who basically cling to certain beliefs because those beliefs have become central to their identity and they turn a blind eye to anything that might upset those beliefs. And this philosopher, his name was Charles Sanders Peirce, he likens these folks to ostriches that hide their heads in the sand. Yes. So, so here's a nice little metaphor for, to, to, to uh, capture the insight you just gave. Imagine an ostrich who senses a predator approaching, decides he doesn't like feeling threatened, and so he buries his head in the sand. Yeah. Right? He's going to get a little bit of, he's going to get a very, very short term, he's going to get peace of mind that might last for a few seconds. Yeah. And then he's done. And then he's done. <laughs> right. I'm hiding from the truth and hiding from the evidence. He always has long term consequences and yeah. always has negative long term consequences. So open your mind, let it in, change your mind, concede your point, graciously concede the point and keep learning. It's, it's so frequent everywhere. And, you know, I, I see this so frequently on my channel, I guess, because a lot of the people that I sit down with are investors and you know, I, I see this, uh, this, this situation where people fall in love with the assets they're investing in, right? And a really common debate right now in, in, in this world is, you know, say maybe Bitcoin versus gold, right? As, 
as where should your cash go to be the, in that safe haven asset? And uh, what's the hedge against inflation? Whatever it is, right? But it's the, it's the common debate. And it's like, man, you, you gain nothing. You gain nothing by just becoming evangelical about either one of those choices, right? Like it doesn't love you back, I guarantee you. Absolutely. Yeah, think about how many people have been bankrupted by becoming evangelical about, I don't know, gold is the safest thing. And then the, the price of gold plummets and they, they can lose their life savings. Yeah, um, it's almost never a good idea to be passionately devoted to a set of ideas. Yeah, that's think you you are not your beliefs, right? Your your second you point there. I think it's far better to hitch your identity to open-minded inquiry, honest inquiry and learning. Hitch your identity to that and then let the chips fall where they may. Um, and as new information comes in, change your mind about everything else. But if you want something, if you want a rock to hold on to, hold on to the rock of honest inquiry. Make that yeah. your 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 north your north star. Okay, you now there's there's a couple there's a couple threads that I, I want to pull on that I haven't yet. And the first, you touched on something that struck me, which is the idea that bad ideas are like parasites. And this is something that's being kind of chased down by the scientific community right now to, to really sort of prove this out, or I guess maybe make people more aware. But touch on this a little bit more for me because you know, the way you explained it is that a, a bad idea enters your brain, but it can change your psychology and the direction of your decision-making and behavior and all this stuff. And obviously we're seeing this left, right, and center right now. So what's the scientific community doing in terms of proving this or bringing this uh, fact to light? Yeah. Uh, so the World Health Organization just issued a major set of findings about what they call infodemics. I mean, they're basically saying time to wake up and recognize that information parasites can spread through populations and harm human prospects that can harm their hosts. So in the same way that a pathogen or biological parasite can take up residence in our bodies and harm our bodies, mm. COVID is a, it's a nice example these days, in exactly the same way, the wrong idea can take root in your mind and harm you as its host. Think about the way in which influenza gets you to sneeze and spread copies of the influenza virus to other bodies. Yeah. Well, evangelical conviction can induce you to proselytize and thereby spread your evangelical views to other, other minds. Exactly the same process. Mm. So it turns out the, these two processes, these two worlds, the world of, of pathogens spreading through bodies, populations of bodies and bad ideas spreading through populations of minds are exactly isomorphic, exactly parallel with one another. And many of the insights of biology and immunology can be carried over to the other side to help us learn how to, to uh, think more clearly and more capably. So in the same way that uh, immunologists design vaccines to protect our bodies, I actually argue that there are mind vaccines that can protect our minds from dangerous, infectious ideas. I, I need to know what those are, Andy, because as you're saying this, I'm like, yeah, you know, influenza is contagious if I'm next to you and I sneeze on you, but your bad idea can get through to me from your phone to my phone. It's just, you know, and globally, yeah. instantaneously, hide in your house if you want to, it doesn't matter, probably exacerbates the problem. So that's right. Or, or it could find its way through Twitter or Facebook or exactly. uh, YouTube, any, anyway, that's right. There's so many ways in which 
uh, both bad and good ideas can spread these days. So I, I actually argue that um, you, you've heard of Socrates, the ancient Greek philosopher. Yeah. He came up with this thing called the Socratic method, which basically says, you know what, only a fraction of the ideas that come that you come across are actually worth hanging on to. Mm. So how do you sift out the good ones from the bad ones? Socrates taught that we should test ideas with questions and see what happens. So imagine subjecting a new idea to every critical question you can think of and honestly see how, how it plays out when you raise those questions and think about them. That's the way you test ideas to determine whether they're likely to be true and likely to be helpful. So I, I, I'm trying to bring back the Socratic method and encourage its use again, because I think it's one of the most powerful mind inoculants ever invented. If we all learn to think a little bit more like Socrates, we could transform our world for the better in mm. extraordinary ways. I, I've developed something I call the new Socratic method, which is a slightly simpler, more modified version of the Socratic method. And I think that if we taught it in schools, people would be far less ideological, far less likely to fall for conspiracy theories or propaganda. And uh, we need to start inoculating minds with something like the Socratic method if we're going to create a world where divisive ideologies don't just tear us, tear our societies apart. Okay, now I'm going to ask you, because right now divisive ideologies are tearing our world apart. That trend is on the increase, not on the decrease. So Andy, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of healthy debate and dialogue and community? And if so, why? Or whatever you are, which direction and why? Uh, there are certainly parts of me that are, that are scared about the current situation, but I'm optimistic because this fledgling science of cognitive immunology is showing us how to conduct our cognitive affairs in ways that don't devolve into mutual acrimony. Um, ways to conduct our cognitive affairs that keep us relatively immune or uh, to the most disastrous and divisive ideas out there. As this science develops and we begin to apply its findings to basic the design of education curricula, to the design of, of information platforms, uh, social media platforms, as we begin to apply this science, it's gonna, we can dramatically reshape the information environment we inhabit and make it one where trust is the rule rather than the exception. Um, and you can rely on most of what you hear because everybody has done due diligence by testing their ideas before they begin to spread them. Does that make sense? Yeah, it sounds good, yeah. It does. Um, I don't think we're going to get there overnight. Uh, we're not going to get there without a very significant investment of time and energy. Mm. But I think the the steps we have to take are now coming into clear focus. And I'm actually uh, working to spread awareness of them through a research institute I've created called the Cognitive Immunology Research Collaborative. That's C-I-R-C-E for short. Uh, I call it CIRCE for short. Um, but Cersei is basically saying, look, the science of how the mind's immune system works is teaching us how we can take critical thinking to the next level and how we can make critical thinking utterly normal 
across all sectors of society. There are far better ways to teach critical thinking, and they involved applying cognitive immunology to strengthen mental immune systems. We can do this, but, but we need people from the foundation community, people from the business world, people in universities, we need governments to be investing in this new science and its applications. Um, otherwise, the great infodemic of our time could tear our civilization. Mm. We need people doing things like this, Andy. So the, the Cognitive Immunology Research Collaborative, did I get that right? Yes. Cersei. Yeah, okay. Cognitive. Yeah, I hope your listeners will check it out online. We're, we're, we're looking for institutional partners and investors, uh, people who are willing, donors who can help us uh, with this mission. Uh, check us out online. It's cognitiveimmunology.net. Cognitiveimmunology.net. Yeah, I'll have a look and and please, yeah, my viewers, check it out. We'll we'll drop a link for where it needs to be in the in the show notes and in the YouTube description. You know, I, it's funny. I can't think of more important missions right now. You know, if I'm really getting real about it, I got three young kids. They're one, three, and five, so they're going to grow up in whatever this becomes. You know, and I don't know what to do right now. <laughs> you know, we're like all over the map in terms of where do we go? How do we educate our children? Like, what's this going to look like? I feel and, you. Uh, yeah, it's it's a scary time, I think, to, to be a parent for sure. I mean, I don't think there were many previous generations that had to worry about whether or not they would inherit whether they would bequeath a habitable planet. Sure. To their children. And there are there's some pretty significant evidence that we're on the path to rendering our planet uninhabitable. And we need to solve that problem too. And we're not going to solve that without, without becoming substantially wiser either. And the key to that is cognitive immunology. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, it's, uh, you know what, I'll, I'll bet all day long on human ingenuity. And, and I'm an optimist to my core, you know, I, I just am. And, you know, I, I don't know which direction this goes. But you know, it's, it's, well, it's people like you, you know, I guess getting the message out. It's, it's people like me and, and people with media platforms start talking about maybe what's wrong and maybe that we should start thinking about how we could fix it. Right. And maybe why. Hallelujah. <laughs> and uh, getting buy-in from education. I think that's, it's, it's so critical. And I'm, I'm really curious about how that sector will shift, uh, you know, as my kids grow up in school programs and my oldest is five. So he's in kindergarten, right? Early stages. And we intentionally sourced a very alternative program. He's in this a school called nature learners the whole thing is outside there's no classrooms it sounds pretty hippie and it kind of is but you know his, his dad's a capitalist so we we marry in the middle there and uh <laughs> and uh <laughs> um, okay. you know on, on day one they walk into the forest and they all select a tree friend all the kindergartners and the purpose of the tree friend is to teach the kids about cyclicality right throughout the course of the year they watch little buds appear in the branches and the buds turn to leaves the leaves turn brown, fall to the ground, a period of quiet stillness takes over winter, but the tree blooms again, right? And so it teaches the kids two important lessons that cycles are everywhere and that nothing in nature stays the same, right? And these sort of different way to educate some, I think, some important core beliefs, because, you know, I don't even navigating your own mindset, like depression is, is often us falling into this, the belief that like things aren't going to change, right? Things aren't going right. to change. As the tree shows the kid, <laughs> I, that, that, that's fascinating. Um, in the in the book, I uh, recount a, a time in my life when I was 
actually, as it turns out, clinically depressed. And I actually had to learn to rewire my own mind by by just being resolutely positive, mm-hmm. resolutely hopeful. Okay. And I and I found that I could pull myself out of out of that depression. You don't have to let your internal optimism level be a reflection of the the state of the world outside. You can choose to be to bring positivity into the world and just be resolutely optimistic or resolutely hopeful. I like to talk about resolute hopefulness. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure I'm always an optimist, but I am resolutely hopeful because I think I can be a better person and um, a better impact on the world if I stay focused on on the things I can do to to make the world a better place and and keep my hope that those will happen a lot. Right. That's similar to like this scarcity versus the abundance mindset, right? When you're operating from a place of scarcity and fear, I operate poorly. I don't see options. I'm less creative. Whereas when I operate from a place of abundance, I, you know, I, I definitely find better paths forward. And yeah. I like that suggestion a lot. I, 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 I experienced that as well. Okay. I need the URL one more time for the, uh, for this, for Cersei. Yeah, Cersei, uh, cognitiveimmunology.net. Cognitiveimmunology.net. People will check it out. We, we we need all hands on deck if we're going to bring about the cognitive immunology revolution and prevent uh, the great infodemic from uh, destroying everything we care about. So uh, I hope yeah. the listeners who want to help out will get in touch. Yeah, no, certainly. And uh, thanks so much, Andy, for coming on the show and letting me pick your brain and uh, and get in front of my pleasure. audience. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. I, I like what you're doing, Jay, and wish you, wish you well. We didn't even get into any of the crazy conspiracies that are going on today. So we got to do this again and get really deep on the weird stuff. Okay, that sounds good. Sounds like a plan. (laughs) All right, have a good day, man. Thanks again. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.